today's scripture comes from Genesis 12 and 15 and and Romans 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And Romans, for the, promise of, for, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only those adherent of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Uh, I want to apologize in advance for my voice. It's terrible. So that's why I have some water and I have one of those Ricola in my mouth. So we'll see. I'm not going to be singing like that anytime soon, but we'll see how it goes, okay? I was supposed to be funny. Everybody laughed. That's good. All right. Usually I make jokes, but I don't laugh. So I'm trying to uh, trying to change that. Uh, thank you, Drew, for 
telling me to change that. Um, <clears throat> we're in week two, a series on the story of Jesus in the, in the uh, season of Advent. And last week, I'm going to do a little bit of review in a second, but last week Drew talked about the fact that Jesus is the second Adam. Talked a lot about the first Adam, what happened with the first Adam, and as a result, where that left uh, humanity, and as a result, uh, or as a result of what Jesus did in coming as the second Adam, where that, or what that then opens for humanity. But in our series, uh, we're looking at how every story of the Bible whispers Jesus' name. Uh, and we, 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 uh, we took that line from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which, again, commercial, if, if you don't have it, uh, go out and get it, especially if you have kids. Uh, but if you think of the story of the Bible, at least this has been helpful for me over the years, to think of it as, like an acorn. And at the beginning in Genesis, you sort of have the acorn. And as you continue to read the story, the acorn pops open, uh, the tree turns into sort of a little seedling sapling, and then it continues to just grow and expand, and, and, and you learn more of God's plan, all that was in the acorn to begin with. Everything from the beginning was there. Uh, it's just the expansion of it as, as, you, as you read through the story. And so we've kind of jumped ahead. Uh, several chapters in the book of Genesis to chapter 12, as you saw. And we're going to look today at the theme of promise and how God's promise to Abraham so long ago ultimately will bring or would bring about the coming of Jesus Christ, the great rescuer. So we're going to see this morning how this story whispers his name. And I'm keenly aware of the fact that first through fifth graders are, are in here. It scares me to death uh, because... I don't want to communicate something that, that they can't get. Uh, and so, as a out for me, let me plead to the parents, listen carefully so that if questions do come later today, you'll be prepared to, to answer those. Uh, if you're a guest with us, or you're here at Redeemer for the first time, or maybe you weren't here last week, I want to take a moment and just review some of the things Drew talked about. He talked about this, this big picture, this big worldview grid of creation, fall, redemption. And how viewing the world through that grid helps us make sense of Jesus' coming. If you're here and, and you're not a Christian or maybe you're investigating Christianity, I want to remind you what those terms mean. What do we mean by creation, fall, redemption? Well, creation, or in creation, we believe everything was peaceful and working the way God designed it to. Universal flourishing. Humanity walking and talking with God in perfect intimacy. He was theirs and they uh, were his. In the fall, though, you have man's sin and rebellion against him, which resulted in brokenness and sadness and guilt, but even more so a war between the offspring of the woman and the serpent uh, would begin. But ultimately, in redemption, if the essence of sin is not your will but mine, Jesus is coming, reversed that way of life and made possible a new reality and by His Spirit, you can receive a new heart that begins to live by the cry, not my will, but thine, O Lord. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you continue reading the story, you'll notice the war between the two family lines, if you will, begins full bore very quickly. Genesis 4 records the first murder 
and relational malice only escalates from there until ultimately God would judge the world by destroying it. But he preserves one man, Noah, and Noah's family. However, the the curse from chapter 3 gets exhibited in the lives of Noah's children and once again escalates until you read of mankind building a city to reach the heavens in chapter 11 of Genesis, climax with this tower. But God spreads mankind out, scattering them for their disobedience because his original command to them was to be fruitful and multiply throughout the whole earth, spread my image throughout the whole earth, and yet they had clustered together to try and reach him in their own uh, abilities and through their own uh, ingenuity. I hope that's not too many details, but hope it gives you enough of a bird's eye view to make sense of why we're coming to Genesis 12, where God reveals himself and a little more of his bigger plan to this guy named Abram. So the outline uh, that you'll see, there's a little insert you should have received in your worship folder. Uh, the passages that Heather read are on one side, and on the other side is the outline. And what we're going to look at this morning is first God's promise. What did he promise Abraham? Uh, And as a result of that, the problem of the reality Abraham saw in front of him. So there's a promise out here that God makes to Abraham, but all he can see is kind of here, what's in front of him, right? He's at this point, God's out there pointing him to something. Uh, How do you begin to bridge that gap between the promise of God, and your reality? And then finally, what's the cost ultimately of bridging that gap? So those three things, the promise of God, the problem, and then the cost uh, of bridging the gap between those two things. So first, the promise. What did God promise Abraham? And why is it important in terms of the larger story? Well, to fully understand the story of Abraham, you've got to start with chapter 12. Uh, The verses we read there recount a series of blessings that God promises Abraham, and he tells him several things. But look look at chapter 12 in the first few verses there. Uh, This is uh, the the missionary impulse of God's people. He he, he starts out by saying, uh, Abram, with you, I'm going to make a people. I'm going to create a people. I'm going to give you descendants so numerous that they're going to cover the earth, and through your descendants... Through the nation that will result from you, I'm going to bless the whole earth. You'll become a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through your family. So in effect, what he's saying is, through Abraham's family, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his character and the work that he has done will spread to every people on the face of the earth. And the wonder of this is, if you think about our contemporary situation, with the way Christianity has spread over our globe, you can immediately refer back to or read Genesis 12, and you can rejoice already. God's a God of His Word. He's kept His Word even to this day, 2010. I don't know what year He made this promise to Abram, but it was a long time ago. It wasn't yesterday. It wasn't last year. It was, I mean, probably thousands of years ago. And yet God told Abram something then that he continues to carry out now. Uh, It's amazing. You can rest assured when he makes a promise, he keeps it. When he says he's going to do something, it's as good as done already. Remember the old Sunday school song? I know many of you sang it. 
Father Abraham, right, had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, da 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 and the rest of the song goes. And what's funny about that is it's mostly Gentiles singing that song about Father Abraham, who was a Jew. And, you know, for a long time, it's just, and hopefully, maybe one day your, your kids might ask, how, how is that? I'm not Jewish. How is Abraham my father? Again, it's a beautiful fulfillment of God's promise that we, so many years later, get to sing that song because we are celebrating the promise of God to our father, Abraham. For the first time through Abraham, God is going to own a group of people, and he's going to set his love, his identity, his mark on those people. And then from there, he's going to say, you, you who have me, you who I'm going to own, are now going to take what I give you and spread it to the entire globe. And you and I sitting here today are the result of the family of Abraham spreading and blessing the entire earth. And the church today continues because there are families, there are groups of people on the earth that have yet to hear about the promise of God to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We continue to go. We continue to spread. So it's a wonderful, beautiful, glorious promise. And yet, there's a problem. And the problem is... Uh, Abraham hears these great promises of God. He hears things like, your family is going to be as many as the stars in the sky. I mean, Genesis 15, God takes him outside and says, look up at the sky. Look at the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. He hears him say, your family will bless the whole world. Your descendants are going to own land as far as you can possibly see. But then he opens his eyes and he looks around and what does he see? Nothing. No kid. Baby, child. No land. Uh, No descendants. I mean, surely there's no nation. It is he and his dried up wife. And I mean dried up wife. She's old, really, really old. And we laugh at that, and it is funny. It is funny. But part of what makes it so funny is how outrageous it is. And yet part of what makes it so amazing is how outrageous it is. And that God would say something so outrageous, but not because... He wants Abraham to just think about some way to make it happen on his own. And we'll see he tries that uh, strategy. Or to just give Abraham and Sarah a good laugh. And many of you know she does laugh when she comes to hear that. But he says things so outrageous like that to point us, to call us to trust his word. That he can do things nobody else can do. And it's really incredible as you get into it. So what I want to do is look at two examples from his life, two ways in which he attempts to bridge the gap between our reality or his reality and God's promises, and, and ways in which we do the same thing. 
And they correspond to really two sort of classic obstacles to biblical faith, pride and fear. Some of you have heard these before, but we'll see how they, they fit in to these examples from Abraham's life. So first, fear. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Uh, if you have a Bible or there's a Bible in the, the pew in front of you and you want to turn there, great. Otherwise, just, just listen uh, as I read because I'm going beyond the, what's on the uh, outline or what's on the insert from the worship folder. But God calls Abram. He says, I'm going to do this for you, Abram. What's the very next verse in verse 4 say? So Abram went, as the Lord told him. He goes to a place. And they come to it. God says, this is the place. To your offspring, I'm going to give this land. Abraham goes on. He finally settles. He builds an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land. Uh, So I've, I've got a problem here, God. You gave me this land. There ain't no food on it. What am I going to do? So he's left with a choice. There's no food here. Abram decides I'll make my own food. The very next statement. So Abram went down to Egypt. For the famine was severe in the land. He needed to find food. Uh, he is so fearful that he's not going to eat that he, he's got to find a way to, to, to get some food. And Egypt was close, it was convenient, it was stable, predictable, and all the other things uh, that you and I do when we get scared. We go to those places, we go to those people, we go to those, those things, uh, and he's able to provide food. Of course, it, it doesn't go so well because he lies about his wife and Pharaoh takes her in and all this other stuff, and it, it just doesn't go well. So really, God says go. He says okay. God says this is it. Abram says there's no food here. I'll make my own food. Secondly, you see his pride. You see his incredible pride in chapter 16 of Genesis. Again, uh, if you got a Bible and you want to turn there, great. This is not on your, your worship folder insert. But basically, chapter 15, we read it together. God says to Abram, you'll have a son He says, okay, great. Now, I want to read to you just one little thing that (laughs) it's easy to miss this in chapter 16. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 16. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Did you catch that? How long had he been living in the promised land where God had said, I'm going to give this to your descendants. You're going to have uh, descendants like the stars of the sky. Ten years. Ten years. Have you waited a decade for anything in your life? Some of you have, yeah. But, but it's easy to just miss. It's ten years. In the, in the matter of a statement in the Bible, ten years passes. That's a long time. A very long time. So, he has doubts. Ten years later, he he remembers God's promise. You'll have a son. Where is he? So, I'll I'll make my own son. And he and Sarah decide, this is how we're going to do it. In both cases, 
Abram moves from the place of faith to the place of self-reliance. Don't, don't miss this, okay? In Genesis 12, he physically travels to Egypt to find food. In Genesis 16, he goes through Ishmael to a place of provision. He, he goes in his own strength to a place where he can find food or make food. In this case, what he needs is a son. He went to Egypt when he doubted the goodness of God and God's ability to keep his promise. And later, we all know, the nation of Israel was tempted to do the same thing. Do you remember how many times in the wilderness Moses says, we're headed to the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I know that what's in front of you and around you is absolutely nothing. Desert. A, a, a hole in the wall. Rocks. But there's a good, there's a, a land's coming. And the people start complaining. Why'd you bring us out here? Egypt was so much nicer. It was so much better. It was so predictable. We could count on it. So why are we so tempted to do that? Why is why was Abram tempted to do that? Well, Egypt represents, and I've already referred to some of this, but in the Bible, Egypt represents a place of fertility and abundance, crops that grow, well-irrigated fields by the Nile River, livestock. It is abundant production. And the kingdom of Egypt prided itself on being independent. They took care of themselves, and they needed no one's help. They lived off the land. They did their own thing. And if you came in there and tried to conquer them, better watch out. Right? They were 100% self-reliant. So for Abram and later for Israel, Egypt represented self-sufficiency. It was like walking by sight because it was predictable and convenient. You could walk through Egypt. You could see the crops. They were right there. You could go pick them. You could provide for yourself. And this dynamic was constantly behind the scenes. You see it throughout the Old Testament. Do I go after the fertility of Egypt? Or do I trust God in the midst of what is apparent barrenness of the promised land? The place of faith, which we'll see. Abraham couldn't see physical fertility in Sarah because she was old. Past childbearing years. Not just past childbearing years, let's be honest. Way past childbearing years. Okay? I'm emphasizing that because I want you to get that. Because it is so crazy. But also he couldn't see agricultural fertility in the land of Canaan. Other people owned it. There wasn't this abundance of, 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 uh, of crops and stuff like there was in Egypt. But he couldn't see any social fertility either because his family didn't own the land. He had to buy a piece of land to bury his wife in. So none of God's promises were just hopping off the page at him or leaping out of the middle of the earth for him or something. He, he was really having a hard time. And so we've got two options. In dealing with the gap between promise and reality, we can do a couple of things. We can fill it with ourselves, fill it with our own abilities, fill it with our own sense of self-reliance, or we can fill it with God. We can have faith in our ability or faith in God's ability. But rest assured, one way or another, you and I, we're going to bridge the gap. If there's a promise out there, and it sounds good and we want it, 
and reality here is I can't see it. We're going to find a way to get across. The scary part is we got all different ways of doing it. What is it to which your heart will cling to reach from reality to the promises of God? Now, before you're too hard on old Abraham. Oh, by the way, did I mention he was old too? Let me just give you a little catalog here. When God called him, he was 75. So by the time he reaches Canaan on foot, it's a year later. I can be in Uganda in about, mm, I don't know, maybe 24, 20, 30 hours, something like that. I mean, he traveled from basically northern Iraq to present-day Israel. It took him a year. So a year passes, he gets to Canaan. He's 86 years old when Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. That's, a, that's 11, uh, yeah, 11 years later. Then he's 99 years old when he's circumcised. And he's 100 years old when Isaac's born. Okay, so by the, for the, the time he hears from God, you're going to have descendants like the sand of the seashore. 25 years. How many of you have waited 25 years for something? And those of you that have, it is hard, isn't it? I can't imagine. I'm only 33 years old. But but the kids uh, in here who, who aren't even 25. And there's people in here who've waited like twice your uh, age for something. And it's just so hard for us to conceive of. I mean, wouldn't you have gotten at least a little impatient? I would have. I get impatient when the road is blocked for five, ten seconds. And it could be the road outside my house. Just trying to get to the end of the road. And the garbage truck is right in the middle of the road. And it's taken forever. Forever as in 30 seconds. I mean, gosh, our sin, our impatience, our, our, our weakness to suffer long is just right there. Because none of us really have to wait on anything. I wanted to ask this question, what's your ceiling for waiting? What's the ceiling? What's the, what, what's the, what's the, uh, the top of the level to which you're willing to wait for something? 25 years for Abram. And he had already lived 75 before God reveals to him, tells him, I want to make you a great nation. Drew and I uh, were talking the other day, and he said, you know, I think, as we were talking about this topic, he said, for most of us, I think our life strategy is to surround ourselves with Hagar's. Right? You know, things that we strategically place in our lives so that when there's a crisis, we, we don't have to trust we just go to the Hagar. And there's the provision right there. Just like that. Problem solved. Crisis averted. Issue taken care of. Faith is almost like a last resort. It's almost silly. It's the last ditch effort to make life work because everything we've tried has failed. You know? I mean, we're either too afraid to believe God's promises or we don't need to believe them. Either way, I got it covered, man. It's good. 
That's like Abraham. Don't you worry, honey. We've got the slave girl over here. We'll get a son. And God comes to him and says, and we read it uh, in the call to worship. Chapter 17, the first words out of God's mouth are what? Walk before me and be blameless. Don't try to run your own life. It's not going to work. So the answer for us and for Abraham to bridge that gap between God's promise and the reality you and I are living in is faith. The only way to bridge the gap is faith. Faith in what is really the question, right? God's willingness to keep his word. His uncompromising willingness to keep his word. Faith in his character. Faith in his acts of the past. Faith in what he promises for the future. Genesis 15 verse 6 says something very startling. Uh, and it's, it's there on your sheet. It says, And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, here's what I, I think it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean Abram believed completely and totally on this occasion and became righteous as a result. Became this wonderful, blameless paragon of virtue just like that. How do I know that? Read the next chapter, right? I mean, it's the very next chapter. He, Sarah, Sarah, this, this isn't working. We're getting older. It's another year. You know, we're another year removed. Let's, let's try to figure this thing out. And they go for it. But in addition, something that's kind of under the surface is the Hebrew word that's used for believed in this particular verse denotes some sort of continuous or ongoing action. It is not just he believed that one time, but it became a lifestyle of Abram, a lifestyle of belief, a lifestyle of trust. Did he falter? Yes, it was an imperfect trust, and yet, it's a trust. So let me say this. Biblical faith is an ongoing, yet feeble trust in God's ability to carry out His promises and His work. I'm always suspicious of my ability. But God's ability is for sure. Every time, you can count on it. I mean, have you ever been given a promise that you just really didn't believe was going to happen, and later it, later it came to pass? It could be something positive. It could be something negative. My hygienist keeps telling me that if I don't floss, bad things are going to happen. I have yet to listen to her. I floss once every other month. That's about it. And then I pray really hard the morning I'm going to see her. Please don't let her see anything bad. I hope Dr. Sizemore's not in here listening to that. Because I'll get in trouble. But, whatever the promise might be, a lot of times we have to wait. And that builds into us patience, trust. But keep reading. We can't skip the second half of the verse. Abraham's faith gets counted or credited to him as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, if you take a look at the passage from Romans chapter 4 that we read earlier, Paul gives some insight into what the Bible means here. Look at verses 20 and 21 of that passage. Paul says about Abraham, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was not in his ability to accomplish God's promise. It was in God's ability to accomplish God's promise. He didn't become righteous. He was counted righteous because of God's work on his behalf. It wasn't a no, he believed God and magically became righteous. It was his faith in God's work for him that God took his righteousness and counted it or credited it to Abraham's account. Righteousness wasn't earned by Abraham because of some rule he kept. Righteousness was credited to him because he trusted God. Paul goes on to say in Romans 4, verses 23, uh, 24 and 25, those last few verses we read, that our faith will be counted as righteousness as well if we trust God's work of raising Jesus from the dead. But it's not ours, remember. It's not ours. It's God's for us. It's God's on our behalf. But if that's the answer, how do you get there? What's, what's the cost? Because there is a cost. It is hard to bridge that gap between reality and the promise of God. I want you to look back at Genesis 15 there on your sheet, the second paragraph. Something very strange happens in Genesis 15, yet there's no chapter in all the Bible that clearly describes the grace of God in salvation like Genesis 15. It is, it is amazing, this chapter. But you've got to have a little background to, to understand why it's so powerful. So let me do that. In the ancient Near East, it was very common for uh, a, a, a really strong king with lots of land, big army, a bigger kingdom, to come to a smaller king and say, hey, we're going to join together in a treaty or in a covenant. I'll protect you. You pay me some, uh, some tax, and, and my army will we'll make sure your army's good, and, and we'll cover kind of the outer borders of your land because we've got more resources than you. And so they would come together and to, to uh, sign their name on the dotted line, so to speak. They would take animals, and they would cut them in half, and then they'd spread them out, kind of like this aisle here. And on either side, they would make this path, and as together they would walk through those pieces, they would pass through those pieces, they would say, if I don't keep my end of the deal, I'm swearing that, I might, uh, that I'll be cut in two, just like these animals. It was a legally binding ceremony. Okay, just like when you sign a marriage certificate, just like when you uh, sign your, your mortgage papers and there's a notary public there or something like that, it's, it's like this, it's very much similar to this process. It was called cutting a covenant, literally. So instead of drafting papers on which you would pin your signature, you gave your word like this, and I just described it to you. Uh, can you imagine if every contract today was, was tendered like this? Yikes. Or marriage. Okay? So, there was a wedding in here yesterday. And, you know, you've got, say the people are off to the side, and there's dead carcasses lining this uh, aisle here. And the husband and wife are walking through the pieces, and the minister is speaking to them, asking them their vows as they walk through those pieces. And if they knew the significance of walking through those pieces, they're swearing. I don't keep my vow. Cut me in half. Break me in two. And, it, and I'm swearing to that. 
I mean, we, we would probably take things a little more seriously than we do. Contract for business as an employee, employer, marriage, school teachers. Uh, I promise you, if you don't, you know, learn this stuff, you're going to walk through these pieces. Whatever it might be. But you know the most incredible part is verse 17. Look at verse 17. After all this, Abram does what he's supposed to do. And at the end of the process, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Only one party walks between the pieces in this covenant. God is saying, if I fail, may I be broken in two. If you, Abraham, fail, may I be broken in two. That's unbelievable. I mean, God is saying the only way his promise will be kept is if he does it. In this covenant, he's declaring our inability, Abraham's inability, to bridge the gap. He's pointing us to his work to accomplish his promise. To take us from the reality in front of us to the fulfillment that's ahead of us. And the wonder of this story is that God says, I would rather be torn apart than see my covenant and my relationship with humanity broken. I'm willing to be broken so that all the families of the earth can find blessing through Abraham's descendants. And ultimately, God would be torn in two. Because in the work and person of Jesus Christ, God's promise to Abraham gets fulfilled because he is the son of Abraham. The one through whom all the nations of the earth would find or will find, do find, blessing. On the cross, Jesus was broken in two because of our failure to keep covenant with God. He obeyed where Abraham doubted. He went to a foreign country. He was tempted in the wilderness. But he pursued a life of obedience and dependence and faith rather than predictability and comfort. I want you to know Jesus' whole life was walking, passing between those pieces. And he was pierced for our transgressions. His obedience and his faith led him to be broken. So God keeping his word is the basis for our faith. Faith for the Christian is not some blind leap in the dark. It's an assurance that you know God has proven in the past. He, he keeps his word. He keeps his promises. His character is true. You can trust it. Christmas is God keeping his word. It's the result of him passing between the pieces thousands of years before he came into the manger in Bethlehem. And when you experience and you're changed by the love of God in Christ, it'll revolutionize Christmas for you. If you freely received salvation on the basis of grace, if God would keep his word to his own hurt and use his power to willingly enter into a relationship with Abraham, for the sake of the whole world, how does that change you? Well, just some questions by way of application as we finish. How reliable is your word? Do you enter into agreements with others or do you make promises only to break them if it, if it becomes hard to keep or inconvenient or, or difficult? Are you willing to keep your own word even if it becomes painful? Or are you willing to pass through the pieces so that the other person doesn't have to? How many relationships are you and I in solely for the sake of the other person? 
What if you get nothing in return? I mean, what if you gave gifts at Christmas and you got no gifts? Let's be honest. We give them so we get something in return. Secondly, how do you use your power? How do you use your influence? Do you use it to help, to bless, or to make life hard, to burden? God willingly enters into a covenant with Abraham, knowing from the start that he will have to pay the cost. But it doesn't stop him. So the question for us is, how willing are we to give up our power to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of somebody else? So no matter where you are this morning, beat up, worried that God isn't going to fulfill his promise, you're just not sure, you haven't seen much, your circumstances are overwhelming, whether you're there, whether reality's bleak, or whether you're here and you're pretty confident in your own ability to provide for yourself. Your, your strategy for dealing with life is pretty consistent. It's pretty solid. You've got these Hagar's stationed at very convenient places throughout your life. Wherever you are, the message of Christmas is the same. The gap between reality and promise is only bridged by the righteousness through faith in Jesus. Faith lays hold of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And you get counted righteous because Jesus is counted righteous. And what goes for him now goes for you. That's the gospel. God keeps his promise even when it cost him his own son. And so as we come to, to communion, coming to understand the willing sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed, is going to produce the kind of life in us, the same kind of self-sacrificial life. It's only by faith in Jesus' broken body and shed blood that will empower us to be then broken and shed our blood if required of us, for the sake of our city and our, our world. So as, as Drew comes to lead us in communion, let's pray that God would produce that in us as a result of uh, our faith. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we stand amazed that you would do uh, what you did in the personal work of Jesus, uh, that you would keep your word to your own hurt, Not just this morning as we partake of uh, you, your body broken and your blood shed, Lord Jesus, but we pray that by your spirit, as you, as you feed us this morning, as we go from here, that our faith in the promises that you have made to us would not be in our ability to keep them or our ability to reach them or accomplish them, but it would be in your word, your character, your past reliability. You, you, are, you are God of your word and you keep it. Thank you that to your own disadvantage and your own hurt in giving up your only son, you would keep your word for us. We pray you'd make us men and women who keep ours and empower us to live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. As we do every <clears throat> Communion Sunday, we have an opportunity to uh, and express and articulate our faith. And so I would ask you to stand as we recite the Apostles' Creed together in response to what we just heard uh, and as we prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table. So I ask Christian in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Amen. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's very appropriate for us to celebrate this meal together this morning because the moment the flaming pot passed through the pieces and Abraham stood and was not made to, The stage was set for the coming of God himself into the world, and not just to save us, but to suffer and to die to save us. And that's what we celebrate in this meal. Here it is uh, that we remember and, uh, and put our minds to the fact that he was indeed cut in two. Not because he broke his word, but because we broke ours. And so we come this morning to celebrate this meal, but as we come, we're instructed in the Scriptures to think through a number of different ways of of self-examination. And I'm just going to list two of them as you again prepare your heart. And the first is just this. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the table of Church of the Redeemer. Uh, And so we invite all of you who have uh, made a profession of faith in Jesus to come and to celebrate this meal. This is a meal set for those who have put their faith in him and who are living as as his disciples. But then a second point of self-examination is that we are coming to celebrate the shocking reality that God would come to die to reconcile us to himself. And if in this meal we celebrate having been reconciled to him, then to come here, the scripture says, and to eat of his flesh that was torn and his blood that was shed and not be reconciled to one another as a community of people, would be a great hypocrisy and would put us in spiritual danger. And so we just caution you and warn you, as you think through self-examination in those areas, uh, as you come. If, if your conscience is clear in both of those things, we invite you to come. The way we're going to do it is we're going to ask you to come down the center aisle, take from those who are serving a piece of bread and a cup, return to your seat on the outside of the aisles, and once everyone's been served, we'll celebrate the meal uh, in concert with one another, and that's how we're going to do this. If your conscience is not clear, uh, then come and speak to Jonathan or I or one of the other leaders in our church, and let's let's uh, let's talk through the hard work of, of of talking about what it means to become a Christian and put your faith in Him. Or if there's relational, you know, discord, uh, the Scripture says, "Go, leave the altar, go, and be reconciled, and then come." Uh, we'll do this again next month. Uh, so let's prepare our hearts um, to come to the Lord's table this morning. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples, and at the feast, he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, This is my body, broken for you. After supper, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. He commands us to take and eat and drink of it, and that as we do, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And so let's pray together this morning. 
as we prepare to come to his table. And if you're helping serve, would you come on and come forward, uh, and we'll pass out the elements to you. Let's pray. Oh, great and glorious God, what an amazing, amazing picture of your grace toward us and your kindness toward us and your love for us. We get there in Genesis chapter 15, that you were the one to pass through the pieces, as it were, to say, if I break my word, may I be cut in two. But Abraham did not go. You walked through for him as well to say, Abraham, if you break your word, may I be cut in two. And indeed, he did, and so have we. And the only hope we have is that you're a God who forgives and ultimately one who came into the world to suffer and to die in our place. And that is what we celebrate at this meal. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we come, we would come with all seriousness and reverence, but we would come with all joy and celebration, for this is a festive feast. We celebrate here the provision of God for us in our weakness and sin and need. It is here that the gap between our circumstances and the realities of our lives and the promises of Scripture uh, are bridged. It is at this table. And so as we come and as we take the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would you feed our faith? Would you nourish our faith? Would we come and would, and would this meal and the recognition of the links to which you have gone to secure our salvation, would it erupt in our lives in faith? Would it overcome our fear and our pride? so that we might bear fruit to your glory. Come and draw near to us now as we celebrate this meal together, as you promised to do. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. And so taking the bread together, this is the body of Christ for you. And taking the cup, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray again. O Lamb of God, come into the world and slain before the foundations of the earth for our sins. We rejoice in you this morning and we ask that, uh, that this meal would be profitable to our souls, that you would use it to strengthen us and to encourage us and to increase our faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We take an offering every Communion Sunday for the needs of the poor and the the needy in our community. We call it the Mercy Offering. So the men are going to come and do that. And as they do, Terry, we're going to need a microphone. Do we have an available microphone right here? Uh, I've asked my friend. I'm really excited. My friend John Sweet, John Hamilton Sweet, I knew his dad is John Sweet as well, uh, is here. He is church planting in a very similar way as we are, but really not in a similar way because he's doing it in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and I'm really excited for you to get to hear a little bit about what's going on in Brooklyn. This is a church plant that we support financially as a church, and we're want, he's wanting us to bring people up there. So if you're wanting to go to New York, uh, come talk to me because we'd like to take some people there. That's a good sell. Uh, but John, come. I guess if you could use 
What's that? If you could come use this microphone. John's going to talk just a little bit about what's going on in his church. He is a, a brother of mine in many ways. His father was a spiritual father to me, uh, and we miss him. And so, glad to have you this morning, John. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Drew. Thank you all for letting me be here. And anytime you get a third pastor in a room, that's referred to as Pastor Palooza, and it's very dangerous. <laughs> Especially when you bring up a pastor who's not preaching. So I have plenty to say. I'm going to try and keep it to a minimum because uh, you're gracious with your time at the end of his service here. And I am very grateful to be here. I'm a son of Polk County. I grew up in Lakeland, Florida. And I've been living the past 10 years or so of my life in Brooklyn, New York. And the story of how a Polk County kid ended up in Brooklyn, New York is a long and sordid one. Not really sordid, but it's long. And I'd be happy to tell you about it sometime, not right now. Uh, my wife, Kathy, and our three kids, Micah, age five, Asher, age three, and Kate, age one and a half, live in Flatbush, Brooklyn. And we're there because we've been called to start a church there, to church plant. And uh, it's great to be here because I love coming home to Polk County. I don't know much about Winter Haven, spent a lot of time in Lakeland. Um, but I know that Drew loves Winter Haven, and that's good enough for me. Um, I love coming home. I love spending time with my family, my mom. Uh, and I love coming to church and worshiping with you and seeing a church plant in, uh, as Drew said, very different circumstances on one hand, but also very similar circumstances on the other hand. And I want to assure you that our commonality in Winter Haven, Florida, and Brooklyn, New York are far greater than the differences. Right? The differences are fun to talk about, and I'll share some of those with you. But what we have in common is far more important. What we have in common, first and foremost, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that through Jesus and in Jesus, God is changing hearts, God is changing communities, God is changing and renewing his world. Uh, as I got up this morning and was looking uh, to get directions to come over here, I saw, just glancing through the website, some of the vision that you guys have for Winter Haven. And we share that in common. You have a vision to see God come and do amazing work here in your community. That's why you're in this building. That's why you're worshiping here. Because you want to see the power of the gospel not just change your life, but change the lives of those around you. And really, not even just change the lives of those around you, but change your city. And that's what God promises to do. That's what God promises to do in Brooklyn as well. And that's why we're in Flatbush. Because we believe that God doesn't just want to change lives in Flatbush. He wants to change Flatbush. And so we share that vision in common, that the gospel is bigger than we can really get our minds and our hearts around. And it means that our city should be different. And that gives us something fun to work toward. And so we share that vision with you. And so I'm grateful for your support of us in Flatbush. Uh, we love that we are partnering with you in that small way. And the invitation is genuine and sincere. We'd love for you to come up and see what we're doing and spend some time in Brooklyn and hang out. I know I just have a few minutes. Let me tell you a little bit about Flatbush, Brooklyn, because uh, it is a fun place. Let me start with Brooklyn. I don't know if many of you probably know that New York City is split into five boroughs. You have Staten Island, which nobody knows about or cares about, um, but there are good people there. The Bronx, Queens, Manhattan, and Brooklyn, the five boroughs of New York City. And, and there's a friendly competition amongst borough residents of which borough really is the best. And Brooklyn has the edge. And that's unofficial. But what is official is this. God loves Brooklyn more than he loves the other boroughs. It's true. It's true. Don't laugh. This is not a joke. I'll tell you why. God loves Brooklyn more than the rest of the boroughs because think about this. It's logical. Does God love people more than he loves land? 
Yes, shake your head. Does God love people more than he loves money? Yes, he does. Brooklyn has more residents than Manhattan. Did you know that? And Queens. So Manhattan has the money. Queens has the land. Brooklyn has the people. God loves Brooklyn more than he loves the other boroughs. Brooklyn is home to about two and a half million people. Um, between the landmass and the number of people who live in Brooklyn, if it were its own city, it would be the fourth largest city in our nation, uh, rivaling Houston. That's the size of Brooklyn. And it's been said that the nations live in Brooklyn, and they do. A third of the immigrants that come into New York City settle in Brooklyn. And so there's just a multitude of wonderfully different people living in the borough. And Flatbush is a microcosm of that diversity. Uh, I'll give you an anecdote to tell you uh, a little bit about what it's like living in Flatbush. Think about how many people are in Winter Haven? 100,000. So take the population of Winter Haven and squeeze it into two square miles. And that's Flatbush. The population density is about 60,000 people per square mile. There's about 100,000 people in the neighborhood of Flatbush. So we're just doing neighborhood ministry like you're doing city ministry. Um, the people in the neighborhood are wildly diverse. We just sent our, uh, our five-year-old to kindergarten. And those of you who have young kids know that this is true. You send your kids to kindergarten, and you're a little unsure of what's going to come back to you. Right? And so Micah comes home after the first week of school, and we're trying to pump him for information. And when you're talking to a five-year-old, you don't really know if the information you're getting is reliable or not. And so we asked Micah, well, are you making friends? Yeah, making friends. Well, what are their names? Um, well, Kazi. Got a friend named Kazi? Yeah, Kazi. Romo. You have a friend named Romo? Mm-hmm, Romo. Ikra. You have a friend named Ikra? Mm-hmm, Ikra. And so we're thinking, like, is he telling us the truth, or is he just making up names because he wants to act like he has friends. Well, he was telling the truth. Those are the names of his friends at school. At PS 139, his elementary school, the students there speak over 50 different languages. And that's just, uh, that's Flatbush. Over 50% of the residents in Flatbush are foreign-born. So it, it has an immigrant flavor to it. Uh, there's a lot of cultural diversity. There's a lot of economic diversity. About 30% of the residents live below the poverty level in Flatbush. Uh, and there's a lot of wealth there as well. So it is, it is a very, very fun place to live. Uh, those are some of the unique things about Flatbush. Uh, the, the population density brings its own glories. We share a backyard. It's called Prospect Park. Um, and so you are forced to be in community with people. And those of you who are working on community and community groups... Uh, amongst one another, you know it's hard to do. It's hard to get people to open up and invite you into their lives and vice versa. And in New York City and Flatbush, you sort of have to do that. You're living with people. You walk out on your street and you bump into them literally, or you won't get down the sidewalk. And so there's some fun things about that. There's some challenges as well. Anytime you get two people together, there are going to be challenges. When you get 100,000 people together in a city, there are going to be challenges uh, when those people are vastly and wildly different than one another, from one another, there are going to be challenges. And so it, it provides wonderful opportunities for gospel ministry. And, and I, and I want to say this, uh, two things. One, let me give you a microcosm of the vision of our church. We started worship a year and a half ago. We started worship in my home. 
We since have moved into um, a partnership with a Baptist church in the neighborhood, renting their facility and worshiping there. We're now worshiping in the high school in the heart of Flatbush, and we're very excited about that because it's centrally located, and, um, and we get a lot of foot traffic. We get a lot of visitors coming in wondering um, what our church is about. We had a guy stop our greeter the other day out in front of church, and he said, is this a black church or a white church? And the greeter happened to be white, and he said, well, we're neither. You know, we're a gospel church, and there's all kinds of people inside. You should come in and see. And the man laughed and walked down the sidewalk. The unity that the gospel ought to create in a congregation is something that is compelling to the world. This is what Jesus said in John 17. He said, I pray that you would be one, speaking to his disciples. I pray that you would be one, because when the world sees your unity, they will know the love of the Father. When the world sees the unity and the love of a congregation of people who are different than one another, you are all different than one another, and yet you're coming together and you're seeking to love one another and have the mind of Christ together. And when the world sees that, it's compelling, because that is not business as usual. We are striving to be a worshiping community in Flatbush for Flatbush. And there's a world of different people, literally, in Flatbush. But if God would bless us to be a gospel-worshiping community that's serving our neighborhood as neighbors, a diverse congregation of people who are very different than one another, coming together, rallying around the gospel of Jesus Christ together, when the neighborhood sees that, they're going to want in. Because they're going to know the love of the Father. That's the promise of Jesus. That's what we're trying to be about in Flatbush. And so we appreciate you being in that with us. Come up and see us. Honestly, if you want to have a fun weekend in New York City, leave the kids behind or bring them. We'll put you up in our house. It's crazy and it's chaos. But you are welcome to be there with us. Um, I have some of these brochures. Just give you a little bit of an idea of what we're doing out there. Please grab one from me. Come up and talk to me afterwards. I'll be here for a while. And uh, again, I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and thanks for the time. Thanks for praying. It's not good. Let's stand together, if you would, as we sing one more time before we're dismissed today. Uh, The good news is that God was willing to keep his word to his own hurt. Uh, Because of that, I can pronounce this benediction over you. And this benediction to the promise, he empowers you to go out and do the same to keep your word to your own hurt. And as we do that, or we will, as John just mentioned, change a city and a world. So receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.